Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the show where we go, where we go, where we go bananas, where we go space monkeys, where we go crazy for Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of Discovery. My name is Zach Armstrong, somehow, mysteriously, still your host, haven't been kicked off yet, and I am here with Ed Pocock, of all people. How about that? How are you, Ed? I'm sorry, Zach, you've got some bad news for you. Oh, no. It's, um, it's just... You know, the overheads for the podcast are too high and, and we're going to have to let you go. Oh, dear. Are you cutting? You're cutting my salary? You're cut. I, my position's been cut. We're going to let you go on for another year. Oh, Woo! yay. <laughs> uh, I just I just got a notification via text that you're doubling my salary, which is so well, welcome. There's two of you. There's Zach Armstrong and then there's Sweaty Zach, your Keyforge. <laughs> Keyforge alter ego, uh, your 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 competitive player alter ego. So we we need to have both sides, and and I thought it's only fair to com- to pay them both. You know, if I don't pay Sweaty Zach, he might he might get a bit angry with me. So yeah, yeah he'll he'll appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'll just pass on his thanks. He's not as good with uh, expressing gratitude as I am. So I'll, I'll just uh, I'll practice writing a nice note with him. Awesome, awesome. Episode. We'll try and keep him to one side this episode, <laughs> anyway. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. but um, but hello and welcome again to our guest, Dave Cordero. Hi, Dave. Hey, Ed. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. Hey, of course. Thank you so much for coming back. As regular listeners will know, we bring our guests back uh, for a discussion about a deck that's unique to them that they've got some good stories with that is particularly interesting in some way or fashion, whether it be a, a name or their experiences with it, or it's just a really fun, cool deck uh, cool deck to play. So Dave, who talked about Triad with us last week, has brought a deck this week. And Dave, could you, uh, could you tell us what the name of your deck is and what uh, people might know about it if they've heard of it before? Sure. My deck is Nuvolari, the Strongly Apologetic, and it has five urchins in it. So uh, that's something you might know about it. That is, I dare say, a lot of urchins. There is one deck with six urchins, but I think this, I think, well, one, yes, I really do want six urchins, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think that this deck is better than that deck, if I had to be honest, but still, mm. I am jealous that there mm. is one deck with six mm. urchins. Watch out, watch out, owner of the six urchin deck, Dave is, Dave is both coming for your deck and uh, challenging you to an urchin off. I am. What an incredible deck, though. And and, and Dave, you've got a uh, you've got a thing for collecting decks with five of things. uh, I understand. Yeah, uh, that kind of started with uh, the first box of Coda that I got. There was a deck in there that had 
a Niffle Queen, five Niffle Apes, uh, two Troop Calls, and like Oh, that. man. Um, I might have had a Full Moon. Uh, I figured out the rule of five. I'm oh, sorry, the rule of six really um, really messes with that deck. So you can't really go like play a bunch of Niffle, play a Troop Call, play a bunch of Niffle Apes, get a bunch of Amber from the uh, Full Moon a bunch of times. You get stopped at six, right? But the first time I played it, I thought I could make like 20-something Amber. And I'm like, yes, this is going to be great. Uh, but regardless of whether or not that deck can combo, it's just like it was really cool having like all of the Niffle themed cards, and mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, it just kind of like it's it's interesting because a lot of card games you're limited to like three or four when you're building decks, but Keyforge the decks are built for you. There's no card limits mm-hmm. really, like to be however many the algorithm throws in there, and the decks are smaller, so if you end up with more than four of a card in a deck and half the deck size, it's just, it's the consistency goes way up. So that's kind of interesting uh, from the way most Keyforge decks play. And it's just, it's just kind of an oddity. I just really like yeah having more cards in a deck than any other card game would allow me to have. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even building this deck. <laughs> it, it's, it's super cool, but I can definitely, um, sympathize with you about the rule of six there i know it is the absolute bane of my more wolves deck and uh, at certain points playing that deck i i really wish it wouldn't exist so i suppose whilst we're talking about it let's dive in how does this affect your five urchins do they find a way around it being sneaky and elusive as they are or are they slightly hampered by it yeah i would say that out of all of the 5x decks that i've uh collected only really the Niffle Ape ones with the troop calls and stuff get hammered by it because you can't like reap and then play troop call and then play them again. Uh, whereas the rest of them, uh, it just kind of lends itself towards more consistency. Uh, you might play one and then like reap with the other, uh, the other ones. There's no real way in a lot of them to go above six. Uh, in, in this deck, you do have a lot of ways to recur the urchins with the Fagin, for example. Uh, so you could like reap with the five urchins, then reap with the Fagin, bounce an urchin and play an urchin, and that's six exactly. Mm. So you don't, you don't really have to worry about like worst case scenario going into seven. Like it, it, it pretty much caps out at six. So for this one, uh, not really, not really a, a big problem. Sure, and I'm seeing a couple things here as we've got the wonderful data. Uh, pulled from a few places on Decks of Keyforge, great site. And I'm seeing power level seven, uh, 12 chains for chain bound. Uh, it's a record of 40 and 12 recorded on here. Obviously, you have a lot of plays in with this deck. It's pretty special mm-hmm. to you. You brought it on this episode. How did you get your hands on this deck? Was it a, a random open or did you seek it out on the secondary market? Uh, so this one I actually uh, did buy fairly early on when Keyforge was kind of new. Uh, there was like a there was a guy that I don't know, he wanted a little bit of extra money for his wedding. It wasn't even that expensive. Like it was two figures, not like oh wow. Like a lot of people were like, you need to spend a ton of money to get like a competitive deck. And I just don't. I I think throughout most of Coda and AOA, all of the decks that I played at Vault Tours, I got between like fifty and a hundred, or thirty and a hundred actually. Yeah, between thirty and a hundred. So it's like yeah, that's more than ten dollars, but it's not. Anytime somebody asks me for more than 500 bucks for a deck, I tell them that the 5e die deck was 450 euros and that they need to calm down. 
<laughs> I think that's some some good advice. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd, I'd agree that the secondary market has a lot of decks that if you, you just look at them and can evaluate them, maybe somebody else hasn't picked up on how good they are uh, or, or just being honest with a seller that they're probably not going to move it for the amount of money that they're, that they're, that they're putting at least at this point in Keyforge's life that you can right. build a strong collection if you want to spend some money like that. Yeah. And if you, one thing, another thing about this deck uh, with the secondary market uh, is that the SAS right now is 74, which is uh, according to this little thing uh, in the 90, 97th percentile. When I got second at Gen Con with this deck, its SAS was 74, which was before the SAS update where everything got lower and the average was 75. So this was actually, according to SAS, a below average deck when I got second at an Archon Voltor with it. Mm, sure, sure. Sometimes uh, things get missed. So if you have a deck that you think is really good, but the SAS doesn't really reflect it, don't let it discourage you. Uh, it just means that... Um, a computer's interpretation of how Nathan thinks isn't as big of a fan of it, probably. Sure, sure. Which, <laughs> which is great having a you know a starting point for the secondary market, but you've uh, got to be able to look past that as far as uh, you know, yeah, looking looking further. Absolutely, and there are so many decks that are an absolute treasure trove of potential victory that are just waiting to be discovered. I'm sure mm -hmm. out there somewhere. Yeah, and I think that. Part of the reason I wanted to play this at Gen Con, well, there are a bunch of reasons I wanted to play this at Gen Con, uh, but part of the reason I chose this one over another one is that it did have a below average SAS, and I kind of wanted to prove to people that you should look beyond just the one number to figure out if your deck is good. Like, you actually have to play your decks, figure them out, uh, and kind of look deeper than just, like, scrolling through and looking at whatever the number is, right? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Certainly. So with this deck, we've that shadows, of course, is where your eye goes looking at the yep. list initially, right? Five urchins, Fagin. Uh, there's a triple poison wave in there. Your other two houses are Brobnar and Untamed. And what kind of roles do those play in this deck uh, if you're not on a shadows turn? What what are, what are they doing to help this this deck achieve a victory condition? Sure. So I think that in Coda, the best combination of houses for a rush deck, or at least all of the rush decks that I saw in Call of the Archons that gave me trouble or were like difficult to beat or ones that I I look at and think like that's like the a top tier Coda Rush deck. They were all like the top five I can think of off the top of my head are all Brobnar, Shadows and Untamed. And I think that that's for well, you start with Shadows and Untamed, right? Untamed in Coda highest amount of burst potential. If you're playing a rush deck, you probably want Untamed in there. You can do it with other houses, but in order to maximize the amount of burst that you have, it's probably going to be an Untamed house, right? And then Code of Shadows, as we all know, very strong, lots of stealing, lots of amber generation. So between Shadows and Untamed, that's going to be the highest ceiling of amber generation for the first two houses. There is one fairly major problem with those two houses, though. And that's that all of the creatures in those houses are wimps. They're all <laughs> very small. Cover your ears, which of the eye, cover your ears. Yeah, for, for and for a deck with Brobnar in it as well. This is a uh, quite astounding. The uh, the Brobnar elders would probably not be not be right. approving. This it does have small Brobnar in there. Uh, but yeah, if you look at the Untamed and Shadows, 
almost every single creature has one power. There are two Umbras with two power, and then I believe there are three... There are two c creatures with three power. Yeah, so you have a Witch of the Eye and a Fagin, two Umbras, and then all of the Urchins and Dust Pixies. So those are all small creatures. And most Shadows and Untamed decks in Coda are going to have that problem, where they have a bunch of very small creatures. Despite what people might have you believe, board control was important and still is important in Coda matchups. Getting ahead on board and being able to reap, like sometimes with this deck, like, you know, just have some, some crappy one power urchins in play, but they're elusive, they're kind of annoying to deal with, you can just reap with them and just make a lot of amber that way. So you still need ways to be able to control the board, whether it's like fighting a witch of the eye off the table or wiping the board. And that's where Brobnar comes in. The creatures in Brobnar are the largest in Call of the Archons. So having Brobnar to go with your Shadows and Untamed gives you some of that much-needed element of board control, especially as more sets have come out and the board has become a bigger focus uh, in, in the game. Uh, so, yeah, I guess what I was going to say is the reason that, uh, you know, you look at the Shadows, like, that's clearly very good. You look at the Untamed. Untamed is all about bursting in here. Uh, it's got the two Dust Pixies, the Nature's Call, he charge, get a witch of the eye with the nature's call. Sometimes you get some some annoying things going on with that. Uh, but the Brobnar is all about controlling the board. And it also has uh, War Drummer and Bumpsy and Smash. So I really like that uh, there's a really big emphasis on play effects in this deck between like the Urchins, the Dust Pixies, Ink of the Spider, and then even the Brobnar creatures, which are historically more about being in play and fighting. Yes, there's a Fire Spitter, but the other two and the War Charmer really emphasize the Bounce and Recursion plan, and it has Burn the Stockpile, which is the only, uh, I think I called it a Haymaker in the last episode. That's the only Haymaker in this deck. This one's all about, like, small, like, you know, it's about two-point Amber Swings, not big. It's, the quantity of two-point Amber Swings is very high. There aren't very many uh, huge swings. It's just uh, death by a thousand two-point cuts. <laughs> very nice. So mentioning burn the stockpile there, Dave, I have it on good authority, which is you, that uh, your burn the stockpile might have gotten some scribbles on it from a particular person. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, Balance Sheet, who's uh, one of the artists who does a lot of Keyforge cards, really great guy. I got to meet him at Gen Con. And uh, part of that sort of uh, to commemorate the uh, the weekend and well, not the weekend, it was kind of a week. Gen Con's long. Uh, but yeah, uh, to commemorate the event, uh, I got him to sign... Uh, the burn the stockpile because he did the art for burn the stockpile so if you go to the uh the website arc archon arcana or whatever it is uh and you go to the balance sheet page you can see the uh, burn the stockpile that's in this deck there's a picture of it that's up there uh and it's signed by the artist basically that's amazing that's amazing uh, and at this point we really should shout out to all of the amazing artists that really make this game what it is and of course the art design team that you know really have a such a cohesive view for this game and uh yeah just build it into what it is there's an amazing card here in untamed and you mentioned a lot of it on uh recursion in this deck and, and and this card is is world tree for some of our listeners might not be aware of this card because it's a it's a rare um and it was in kota and, and uh age of ascension it's an artifact it's a location and it's an action that says return a creature from your discard pile to the top of your deck so uh 
Dave, how has this card been used as part of the wider strategy in your deck? And what are those what are those targets for recursion? I see you've got a lot of options here with the urchins, the dust pixies, um, things like that. But the top of your deck must be uh, must add a, a bit of a bit of added interest to this card because yeah, unless you're going to draw that card this turn, it's probably going to be you're, you're probably going to want it to be one of the other two houses. Yeah, so sometimes it's one of the other two houses. Uh, that card, I think a lot of people don't like because it's an artifact and it's exhausted, no immediate effect. Then finally, when you call Untamed again, you use it. There's still no immediate effect. It just puts a card on top of your deck. Uh, however, with the, the volume of play effects that are in this, putting a creature on top of your deck is, is pretty good. And it lets you set up the rest of your turns pretty well. If you're starting to build up more Shadows cards in your hand, you can take an Urchin off the your discard pile, put it on top of your deck. The whole point of this deck is to just get as many two-point swings as you possibly can. So putting a Dust Pixie or an Urchin on top is kind of where you're at. Maybe if you're looking at going Brobnar, you could put Bumpsy or War Drummer on top to sort of set up that combo. Maybe if you played Bumpsy early and it died, now you have the War Drummer. You can put the Bumpsy back on top, so now you can go Bumpsy, War Drummer, Bumpsy. It, it, it does a lot to help with the consistency and smoothness of the deck. Uh, given that this deck has otherwise uh, little to nothing to go as far as, uh, like, there's no archiving in here. There's no extra card drawing. There's there's none of that. This deck has its cards in its hand, and uh, you sometimes you hold them. Uh, like, if you're trying to set up uh, something like maybe uh, Loot the Bodies and Coward's End is a very potent combo in here. So you might hold on to the Coward's End for the right time to play that. Um and then maybe you'll get into the loot the bodies to get a huge amber burst with that. Uh, but really, there's like if you had a creature early, like uh, the Dust Pixie, and you didn't have Nature's Call or something to go with it, World Tree, or to an extent Regrowth. Regrowth mostly just wants to get the Dust Pixies, but you can use it to put the card on top of your deck and then have that nice little combo on the next turn. Yeah, that's super cool. That is. That is. Um, and uh, after you said, you know, just knowing when to hold them, uh, Kenny Rogers gave me a call here, Dave, and wants to know if it's really a situation where you have to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. And do you know when to walk away, know when to run with this deck? Uh, yeah, I, this deck uh, does hold cards a lot, honestly. Um, and I know that there's a lot of different, uh, there's a different play styles of Keyforge that high level players engage in. And I know uh, when. Bouncing Death Quirk was covering the finals of uh, the Vault Tour. I know FFG was doing the official one, but they did like an overcast or whatever. Uh, and they were totally dumping on me for holding cards all the time. But, you know, that's just kind of how the deck plays. Uh, the best deck, the best card in the deck is Urchin or Dust Pixie. They're very similar. They're both just two-point Amber Swings. There's no reason to play an Urchin if it's not going to steal Amber. You're sure. not going to draw a card that's better than Urchin. Sometimes mm. like, it depends on the situation, right? But if they have no amber and you have an urchin in your hand and you're going shadows, sometimes it's right to just hold the urchin. It's not like playing the urchin is going to draw you a card that's better than the urchin. What you wanted to draw was an urchin. So just hold it. Or, uh, you know, just finding, like I said earlier, finding the right time for the coward's end or the key charge or something like that. You will obviously get rid of, like, if, you're, if your opponent's at zero amber and you have burned a stockpile, you might bin that. But, uh, because there's no archiving and no card drawing in this, you do sometimes have to identify when it is correct to hold 
a card and get the most amount of uh, effectiveness out of it. Mm -hmm. I've found that is one of the uh, kind of biggest level up moments for a lot of Keyforge players, especially myself, is as you get to know a deck, as you get to know a card pool and matchups, knowing when to hold a card, meaning, you know, you're not going to draw another card, but you do want to hold it for that reason. And I think uh, how you talked about those urchins as a great example, if they don't have any amber, like what are you playing that urchin for? Because you're not going to get something better than than urchin. That's a really great point. That's well mm -hmm. illustrated by this deck. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's the, the videos of uh, me playing this at Gen Con or, or on YouTube or whatever. I think two or three matches got decided by me having loot the bodies and cowards end together. Mm, sure. And being able to reset the board and make a ton of amber. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Now, we, we talked wow. about on the last episode when we were discussing strategy for especially picking and banning decks in Triad, we mentioned that, you know, there's no invincible Keyforge deck, uh, not yet, and hopefully never. But everything's got a everything's got an at least an edge case, if not an archetype that that it'll struggle against. So for for a deck with all of this untamed rush, the support in Brabnar, and five friggin' urchins, what gives this deck a hard time? Sure. Uh, so there's a there's a couple things really. Um, so like I mentioned, there is no real haymaker outside of uh, burn the stockpile. So if my opponent managed to uh, go up to a very high amount of amber, I'm going to have to uh, also go to a very high amount of amber and then maybe get there with like the key charge or the miasma or something like that. So there's no way to deal with lots of amber. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why, but historically this deck has had an awful time playing against AOA decks. It has plenty of board control, so it's not that. There's just something else about the way AOA operates that I, I think I win not 0%, but very few... AOA matchups with this deck, which is convenient because nobody plays AOA. Uh, so I don't really have to worry about that too much, but it's just kind of bad against AOA decks. Totally fine against Call of the Archons, totally fine against Worlds Collide. AOA, something about it, uh, it struggles there. Mm -hmm. a, a second question to our question of what does your deck struggle with would be if, if this was a game where you could, you know, slip in another card from anywhere what would that card be? What card would take this deck and even bolster your options further and maybe protect against some of those problematic deck archetypes? Uh, sure. Uh, so, I mean, the most obvious thing would be some form of uh, mass amber control, uh, possibly over uh, Miasma, which I guess would be the only card. Uh, like, yeah, so you could put like a too much protect in there over the Miasma. I'm glad that this deck does not have bait and switch, because historically, Bait and Switch has always been a bad card, in my opinion. Uh, but particularly now that it does nothing. Uh, Urchin is just better than it if you're ahead, which this deck is aiming to be. Uh, on Amber, Bait and Switch would be bad. But too much to protect if they burst way up uh, could be quite good. I like all of the cards in this deck. However, you might look at the Brobnar and see that it has both Follow the Leader and mm -hmm. Rhythm Battle. Yeah. Which let you fight with non-Brobnar creatures. But then you look at then you look at the shadows and untamed creatures, and like what I was saying earlier, they all have one power, or they're like a Fagin or a Witch of the Eye, and you just don't really want to fight with that. It's less it's less death by a thousand cuts and more mild injury by twelve cuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so those cards would be the the weakest cards in the deck. Uh, Brothers in Battle having a pip is totally fine, right? Uh, leave that in there. But that said, 
one of the most interesting things about Keyforge is finding a way to make the most use out of cards that are generally viewed as uh, suboptimal. Like the, the World Tree I talked about earlier, normally a bad card does a lot of work in here. Uh, there was one event, which was the first Keyforge events uh, online thing. There used to be a Discord like called Keyforge Events, KFE, and they were the ones that ran all of the online uh, tournaments uh, sort of early on before there was Chainbound or any other real OP. And this was the deck that I brought to the first monthly invitational there, which I ended up winning. But I, I distinctly remember round one, I was going against uh, Trey Martian. Uh, I think his name is just Trey or something. He, he doesn't really play as much anymore. Uh, but that was the fastest game of Keyforge I have ever been involved in. And I won on turn three. And I would not have been able to do it without Follow the Leader. Wow. Really? Yep. What, what was that situation like? So turn one, I played Witch of the Eye. He thought he had a really, really strong start. He was playing Batar, Fire Eater, something or other. It's a, it's a triple hunting witch deck, which uh, it, it's been bought and sold a number of times. It's been it's made its way around. I don't know who has it now, um, but that's a deck people might have recognized if they played a lot during Coda. Uh, but he goes hunting witch, five untamed creatures. So uh, I'm like, okay, uh, he has five amber and six creatures in play. That's a lot. Looking at my hand, I had loot the bodies and cowards end, thankfully. Uh, but I, I didn't want to lose the uh, the witch. But I had follow the leader. So I could play the follow the leader then I use, uh, and the uh, loot the bodies. Attacked uh, with the hunting witch to put... Not hunting witch. Attacked the hunting witch with the witch of the eye to put two damage onto it. Gain an amber there. Now I can Coward's End to kill the rest of his creatures, but not my witch. I'm at six amber, right? Pass back to him. He does some other stuff. I've now drawn into some combination of key charges, nature's calls, dust pixies. And I'm able to uh, make a ton of amber and key charge uh, twice for the last two keys. So that wouldn't have worked if I didn't have follow the leader to put damage on the witch of the eye so that it wouldn't die to coward's end. Wow. That is, mm. that is like you said before, those situations, finding, finding ways to use those cards that might not be great, but they're in your deck because that's Keyforge, And it, it literally let you put that damage on witch of the eye. So it survived the, the, the mega board wipe and Amber burst there. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And sometimes you just need to run five one-powered creatures into something to get rid of it. Which is just the, the funniest mental image. <laughs> just thinking of those one-powered creatures now, the uh, we've seen with Worlds Collide uh, a lot of big board going on. And now in Mass Mutation, uh, at least early indicators say there's a lot of things that do do a lot of dam a little bit of damage across a lot of spaces you know from those one damage pips i suppose being the most uh, uh, the most uh, obvious example of that and do you think that's going to change how competitive this deck is or the way that you might need to play um, or do you think this deck is equally as competitive in spite of in spite of these changes i think part of the strength of dust pixie and urchin is that as soon as you play them, they've done what they're trying to do. Dust Pixie, you got your two amber. Urchin, you subtracted one from them and gained one, which is also a two-point amber swing. But now they're just sitting there in play. They have to invest resources into removing those from the board, or they're just going to continue to gain an advantage because you're going to reap with them. So 
it's not that having easy ways to kill one power the one power creatures is going to make this deck worse because you've played them and they've already done what you played them to do um anything beyond that is like strictly upside if anything the damage pips on their own creatures might make it harder for me to cowards end but i don't know how much of that i'm gonna have to deal with because sure that's, interesting that's a little bit yeah. of a heads up play that uh people who aren't <laughs> listening to this podcast might not think about <laughs> i didn't think about that but yeah take notes everyone <laughs> we get we get a surprising amount of insight into specific deck weaknesses on these deck discovery episodes with people like like comp phage or others uh takes a lot of effort but maybe somebody could build a library of knowledge <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah how to undermine my opponents before i even match with them. <laughs> if you're happening like if it. you're happening to have played or happening if you're happening to play someone who was a guest on call of discovery there you go <laughs> It does mean people have got to listen through the podcast, though. Uh, so, you know, you've got to you've got to weigh the positives against the negatives there, I suppose. Yeah. Well, thank you for your <laughs> sacrifice, Dave, for our, uh, for our podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. No worries. Uh, oh. That's something I use the uh, cooperative hunting in this deck for sometimes. It's just like put a damage on some of the things that aren't one power just so that if I'm setting up a coward's end in the future that my stuff won't die. So right. just uh, knowing when to damage your own creatures is interesting when there's a coward's end in play yeah definitely agreed there okay okay well thank you first of all dave for joining us for our second episode together we certainly had to uh drag you back kicking and screaming but uh, i do hope it was worth coming back oh yeah no thanks for thanks for having me on it was, it was a lot of fun talking to you guys uh it's good good conversation Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, really good conversation. And uh, where can we find you, Dave? Uh, you can find me on both the uh, main Keyforge uh, Facebook page, uh, since I'm the admin on that. I'm in almost all of the Keyforge discords. I'm not in yours because you said that's Patreon only, which is almost a relief because I am in like 55 discords total. Not all of them are Keyforge. <laughs> only only half of them are Keyforge. Uh, but yeah, if you're if you're on Discord, Go into any given Keyforge Discord. You can probably find me in there. Uh, re the Reap Out one is a good place to just kind of have a nice conversation uh, or whatever. So yeah, uh, Discord and Facebook mainly. And if you are enjoying Call of Discovery and are willing and able to support us in a monetary fashion, our Patreon is linked below where you can put your own weird and wonderful decks in the spotlight and have your say in our future through our Patreon-only Discord. Let us also know what you'd like to see more and less of in future shows. You can email us. Zach, what is our new email address? Podcast at callofdiscovery.com Ooh, it's mysterious. It almost sounds professional. Oh, goodness. We couldn't, could we? <laughs> it's, it's it's not that mysterious. I think people know I may have. It's pretty obvious I may have purchased that particular domain. Hmm. <laughs> but no, please do also subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You leaving a review and subscribing either, yeah, really does help to get the podcast out there and help people think oh yes i should listen to this podcast or if you really don't like the podcast i i'm surprised you'd be listening this far you know but uh then feel free to leave us one star as well um we are on all of the socials the twitters the facebooks and the instagrams so feel free to connect with us there as well but most importantly 
If you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, then please do help them to discover it. Have you answered the call of discovery? It just feels so cheesy every time and I love it. (laughs) 